Hoodoo is a bold tradition that deals directly with spirit, particularly with how your spirit and supernatural spirits come together, positively or negatively, to affect your well-being. The Hoodoo's dealings in this arena are propelled by an unflinching and relentless concern for all matters, including viewing spirits as an integral and lively component of daily life. These spirits are found in all aspects of the world, plants, animals, stones, and even in inanimate forces of nature, such as lightning or wind. All are imbued with a universal energy force known as Ashe. To gain benefit of these supernatural forces, the hoodoo practitioner crafts mojo bags, sewn pouches known as hands, waters, oils, dusts, dirts, potions, prayers, and finally, tricks, the hoodoo term for spells. In the book 365 Days of Hoodoo, Daily Rootwork, Mojo, and Conjuration, author Stephanie Rose Bird will guide you through the basics of hoodoo, introducing you to key components and practices of this ever-evolving African-American-based spiritual tradition. I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Goblins! Tonight we are focusing on another unique magical tradition known as Hoodoo with the book 365 Days of Hoodoo by Stephanie Rose Bird. Let's start by introducing the author. Stephanie Rose Bird is a resident of Chicago and describes herself as a hereditary intuitive, contemporary root worker, and a solitary green witch. Looking at the rest of her bio, I feel like this description really sells short her accomplishments. Stephanie is also a graduate of Temple University and holds a Master of Fine Arts degree from the University of San Diego, California. She is an internationally exhibited artist with works shown throughout the United States and served as an assistant professor of painting and drawing at the School of the Art Institute of the Art Institute of Chicago. Prior to COVID, she hosted workshops on herbalism, magical herbalism, earth-based spirituality, aromatherapy, art, and crafting. Magic, it seems, also runs in her veins. Both of her grandmothers were known for their talents. One was a noted psychic, and the other was a spiritual minister and herbal healer. Her uncle is also a babalawo, or priest, of Shango in the Santeria faith. Being located in Illinois also placed Stephanie in a unique position in terms of hoodoo. A man by the name of Harry Middleton Hyatt recorded and archived interviews with hoodoos and spiritual practitioners throughout the United States and eventually compiled his findings into a book series with the title Hoodoo, Conjuration, Witchcraft, Rootwork, Beliefs Accepted by Many Negroes and White Persons, these being orally recorded among blacks and whites. Part of the archives of this five-volume set is stored in the Quincy University Department of Special Collections in Quincy, Illinois. Granted, this is still a five-hour drive from Chicago, but still, it's there. This collection is unique 
because it records first-hand accounts from the people who actively participated in hoodoo between 1936 and 1940. Hyatt even went as far as to transcribe the interviews phonetically to capture the regional dialects and pronunciations. Personally, when I am dealing with such a specific subject as hoodoo, I'd like to have as much historic first-hand information as possible. Bird utilizes Hyatt's book pretty frequently in 365 Days of Hoodoo. In fact, when a specific historic trick is referenced, she cites the location where it was originally collected by Hyatt. But, don't think that this book is just a rehash of older stories. This is a living tradition that is actively growing as practitioners gain access to different spiritual modalities. It is evident that Bird also draws influence from Wicca, spiritualism, and Hindu practices in this text. One of the best examples of these combined beliefs is a prayer included on Day 37, Alternate Holy Water Cleansing Ritual. It reads as follows. Blessed Water Deva, may your fluidity and graceful cleansing gifts permeate my healing waters. Earth Mother and Father Son, I call upon thee. Purify these salt crystals. In your bountiful and beautiful image, I pray. Blessed be, blessed be, blessed be. Before we look into this passage, let me say that I could not find any good sources of the definition of Deva in any online dictionary. Most simply said, a Hindu deity, which is way too reductive. Instead, I turned to LearnReligions.com, which had an article under the subcategory of angels that was simply entitled Devas. This short article explains that the term Deva is Sanskrit for shining ones, which refers to the fact that these beings have achieved enlightenment. It further elaborates that every living thing in creation has a Deva assigned to it. This is a bit more expansive than you might first think, because Hindu beliefs also incorporate a prominent system of animism, in which rocks, rivers, minerals, and other things generally considered inanimate in Western society are also considered to be living. That means the very first line of the previous blessing speaks directly to the specific deva of your water. Now, incorporating a Sanskrit term into a hoodoo blessing may not sit well with a lot of people, but to me, it is an example of how flexible hoodoo practices can be. Besides, the Yoruba tradition also incorporates animism, as do many other non-Abrahamic religions. So if you want to replace the term Deva with whatever entity you wish to petition, you're free to do so. This also speaks to another strength of hoodoo, and that is how it is about exercising your personal power. Do your personal practices involve land whites, or the loa, or fairies? Then you can easily adapt hoodoo to incorporate them. Some people will balk at this sentiment, but hoodoo is an African-American cultural tradition that developed in the melting pot of early America. The originators didn't have the luxury of importing familiar plants or tools. They had to learn the land around them often incorporating the beliefs of Native American tribes who taught them, as well as those of other cultures who settled in the immediate area. 
That's why there is no one core hoodoo system. You will find regional variations based on the cultural groups in an area and the materials that people had access to. We see this incorporated into another part of the holy water blessing with the phrase Earth Mother and Father Son. This statement is nonspecific, but could easily be an inclusion from Yoruba, Native American spirituality, or even from modern Wiccan practices. It's really hard to tell. Furthermore, the closing of the blessing is clearly a Wiccan element using the phrase Blessed Be. Like I said, it's about exercising your personal power and using the elements that make sense to you. That said, these inclusions are only a small part of this book and are typically limited to examples of alternatives to Christian-based prayers or psalms, which are often traditionally used in hoodoo. Let's change direction a bit and take a look at how the book is formatted and how the instructions are delivered. This title, as the name would suggest, is set up similarly to the year-in-a-day Wiccan instruction books. There are 365 lessons that are made to be examined each day, with new lessons building upon those previously delivered. These lessons are further divided into three larger thematic sections, and then into 12 chapters, one for each month. This makes the lessons flow pretty well, but also gives a person a sense of completion when a chapter or section is finished. The three sections are entitled Hoodoo Fixins, Key Components of Your Hoodoo Spells and Tricks, Tricks of the Hoodoo Trade, Spells, Rights, and More, and finally, Disturb Me Not, not spelled with a K, Shielding, Noticing, and Undoing Negativity. In Hoodoo Fixins, the chapters are divided into mojo bags, waters, candles and incense, foot track magic, and finally, dirts, dusts of the graveyard, and crossroads. As you can already tell, even though the book is divided into four sections, the sections are not evenly distributed. The section on the basics covers a five-month span of time. Not that that's a criticism, there is a lot to cover in the basics. I just point it out so that you know what to expect. There are two chapters within this section that I feel really exemplify section 1, the chapter on mojo bags and the chapter on dusts and dirts. Why do I say this? Mostly because they are broken down into history, components, ethical gathering of materials, and then direction on how to use them. This step-by-step -step approach makes these sections quite accessible to the reader. In fact, it's not until day 17 that you are actually given instructions on how to create something. This is because there is a lot of background information to absorb first, especially for readers who are otherwise unfamiliar with magical practices. Day 1 is exactly what you would expect. What is a mojo bag? Mojo bags aren't a singular thing but more of a blanket term for a spell of protection or drawing encapsulated in a cloth container. These bags can either be closed with a drawstring or sewn permanently shut, depending on the circumstance. What I appreciated most about this lesson is that the author, on day one, talks about how magical objects in hoodoo are created using the concept of animism. Why is this important? 
Later in the book, it is revealed that because these are animistic objects, they have spirits attached to them and are considered alive. That means they need to be fed, though this doesn't mean that they have to be given food and drink, at least not in the way that we think of consuming food and drink. They do need nourishment, though, which often involves applying oils, waters, or whiskey to certain components within the mojo bag. Day 2 talks about one of the most important components of the mojo bag, the material used for the bag itself, flannel. Specific colors have specific meanings, but the most commonly used in hoodoo are red, green, and sometimes yellow. There are several reasons that flannel specifically is used. Flannel is both inexpensive, easily obtained, and soft to the touch. Now, why is it important for this to be soft? Mojo bags and nation bags, which are related to mojo bags, are usually worn under the clothing and against the skin. The objects within aren't always smooth, so you want a material that will cushion them a bit. Not only that, but historically, and I'm not really sure why this is the case, flannel was typically dyed red which is the primary color used for mojo bags. I feel like this is a chicken or the egg situation where it's unclear if mojo bags are red so they use flannel, or if flannel is historically red so mojo bags tend to be that color. At this stage in history, I don't think it really matters because the two are pretty closely tied together. One of the lessons in the chapter is an exploration in the similarities between the practices of certain African tribes making magical bundles and Native American tribes making medicine bags. The two practices are very similar, so it's no surprise that the two groups were able to work closely together when they made contact. Specifically, even though the details may have been different, the underlying belief structures between the two groups were very closely paralleled. Earlier, I mentioned the nation sack, and it's probably not something you've ever heard of before. It's a specific type of mojo bag that is used by, quote, people who identify as women. These items are created with a specific taboo that prevents a man from coming into contact with it, or else it will lose its efficacy. Like mojo bags, nation sacks are kept close to the body, but Unlike mojo bags, they can be made from any garment material. In fact, it is mentioned that nation sacks made from clothing increases the potency of the object because it already has a close affiliation with that person. Thus, a nation sack made from a loved one's clothing has a powerful tie to that individual. To better explain how and why this works, I have to jump forward a few chapters to the section on graveyard dirt. This magical component is surrounded by an air of mystery and menace, but it's really not all that terrible a thing, although in some places it is illegal to gather, so check your local laws before harvesting your own. Because all things in creation have ashe, or inherent spirit, it is believed that objects in contact with one another have ashe transfer, Sometimes, this is just incidental transfer, like we think of in the phrase, someone's bad luck rubbed off on you. 
Other times, such as in the case of nation sacks and graveyard dirt, a person's ashe is in such close, constant contact with the surrounding material that a bond is formed. The object's own ashe now shares space with that specific person's ashe. Thus, a nation sack made from someone else's clothing creates an energetic, magical bond with them. In the case of graveyard dirt, it is believed that a person's ghost is able to leave their body after death, although they return to their remains in order to rest. Because ghosts are intangible, the spirit passes through the soil where they are buried, leaving behind traces of their ashe. This is where collecting graveyard dirt becomes a bit of a research project as much as anything else. What was this person like in life? What were their moral beliefs? Were they a good or a wicked person? Would they be willing to hurt others to defend their family? Are you even related to them? Were they a warrior, healer, or scholar? All of these questions are necessary when using graveyard dirt because that person's ashe is intrinsically a part of this magical component. Now, I don't want to scare you, but graveyard dirt also creates an energetic tie to that ghost. So make sure that you gather dirt respectfully, leaving offerings, because otherwise they can and will find you. What exactly does it mean to respectfully collect graveyard dirt? There are several things to consider. Stephanie suggests erecting a small altar to Eshu Alegba, but that is tied to a specific belief system. The idea is that you are leaving an offering to the guardian of the graveyards, or to the guardian of that specific graveyard. This is usually done near the entrance before even going in. You want to make sure that the guardians watch over you when you enter, and prevent anything from following you home after you leave. You're not done yet, though. That's basically just getting permission to enter. Now that you are in the graveyard, you need to locate a suitable grave and begin the gathering process. When you find a spot, make sure you have an offering. Some people leave shot glasses of whiskey, tobacco, perfume, or basically whatever they think the person would appreciate. This works best if you know a bit about the person's preference in life. For example, if anyone in the future wants to gather my graveyard dirt, they just need to bring me an offering of hot coffee. If you are unsure, there is an offering that is traditionally used as a universal sacrifice. Coins. Specifically, there is a close tie in hoodoo between pennies and dimes. Ideally, Indian head pennies and mercury dimes are said to work best, though it's unclear why this is the case. Locating these coins is becoming increasingly difficult, so it's recommended to use the oldest coins that you can find. Personally, I think it would make sense to utilize coins that were in circulation while the individual was alive. Imagine leaving an offering of a modern 50 states quarter for an ancestor that lived in the 1800s. While they may appreciate the sentiment, I'm sure the coin itself would be a bit confusing. Then again, if the person was obsessed with novelty in life, you may want to use the newest, most recently minted coin. Again, it comes down to knowing your subject. There are some slight variations on effect 
based on what part of the grave you gather the dirt from as well, though that seems to be a topic more advanced than what is covered in this book. In this, Stephanie teaches you how to harvest dirt near the headstone, but there is also a single example of a specific mojo bag that you can make using dirt from near the footstone of the grave. I'll let you discover that one yourself. There is another magical aspect that people typically associate with hoodoo, and that is hot foot powder. This was eye-opening for me, even after reading up quite a bit about hoodoo practices prior to this. The most common hot foot powder in the magical zeitgeist is one used to make someone leave or move. Much like mojo bags, though, hot foot powder is a term for a broad range of powders used both for and against people. Since this is an introductory book, there aren't any powders that do harmful things to people, but there are several that bring benefit to the hoodoo themselves. First, we need to take a step back and look at foot track magic. Pardon the pun. Remember what I was saying earlier about trace amounts of a shea being left when in close proximity to subjects? It's no different for where you walk, especially if you are walking around barefoot. What you'll find is that foot track magic is very time sensitive though. If you are using it to target a person, it becomes weaker as the footprint erodes. This is also why you find so many rituals about sweeping in traditional hoodoo. The idea is to cleanse an area, yes, but also to destroy footprints. For example, in the section on unhexing, there is a specific rite that is performed while cleansing with your specially prepared broom. You will come here no more. You will spread harm no more. I banish you from my home and hearth. You are banished forevermore. So remember, in hoodoo, cleanliness is a magical act in itself. Now that you have a good idea of what is found within this book, let's take a moment to talk about the book itself. When researching for this show, I looked at reviews on various websites, and a singular theme seemed to arise in quite a few. It's an issue that I noticed myself while reading this book but I didn't have a solution, so I'm glad that other readers did. This book has a bad habit of having days where your only task is to find X object. Sometimes it's something that requires special direction, such as gathering graveyard dirt, so it makes sense to incorporate it into a lesson. Other times, especially in early chapters, it seems to be an afterthought tacked on to an unrelated lesson, for example, on day 6, the lesson is on understanding a shea, but at the end, your direction is to go gather cinnamon chips, Adam and Eve root, and High John the Conqueror root. If you happen to have a botanica or a metaphysical store nearby, this should be a simple task. If you don't, then this becomes more than something that you can accomplish in an hour's time. The solution that most readers came up with was to include a shopping list at the beginning of each chapter. Since each chapter corresponds to a full month's lesson, this makes a lot of sense. That way, you know that you will be needing some uncommon items, and you can order them online if necessary. But, the book doesn't have this. So it can sometimes be frustrating when a lesson says, Okay, now go find Van Van Oil. Besides that criticism, I did enjoy this book quite a bit. 
It's a good introduction to the topic, and it builds upon the lessons in an even, steady pace. You may not even realize it until you get close to the end. Your tricks will become quite complex, but they won't seem that way to you because you've slowly been learning about each individual component along the way. While I may have found the early lessons about gathering items frustrating, they do serve a purpose. Once you get to about day 300, you'll have a well-stocked supply of items to use for your works. So if you are wanting a basic understanding of the magical art of hoodoo, this book is a great introduction. Just a forewarning though, it is written to be consumed in small portions, so reading more than a few lessons in one sitting can become quite tiresome. Getting through the entire book in a single month sometimes became quite the chore. If any of this intrigued you and you want to give Hoodoo a try, check out the book 365 Days of Hoodoo by Stephanie Rose Bird. As always, I'll have a link in the show notes. If you want to follow the Esoteric Book Club online, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. Patrons who donate at the highest tier get a shout-out on each and every show, just like Samantha Shaver, who has been a supporter of the Esoteric Book Club since, well, pretty much since the beginning. If Patreon isn't your thing and you would still like to make a donation, I'll also post a PayPal link. Anyone who makes a one-time donation will also get a shout-out on the preceding show. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. If you want to hear more, you can find them on Bandcamp.com and at WeAreHelloJune.com. For those who are interested, the intro song is titled Fight, Don't Fight. That's all I have for tonight, so until next time, remember, stay weird! <laughs>